Okay, so let's do me a favor and turn with me to uh, chapter 6. I sort of skipped around last week, and uh, we did the feeding of the 5,000. And if our folks are savvy enough, actually they're savvy enough, I'm the one that's not savvy enough, I want you to pop up there, uh, the Sea of Galilee on the, and behind me, if you're able to. And if not, well, we'll just have to imagine it in our minds. Uh, no, the map first, please, the map. And so here's what we're dealing with. We are, I want you to know this. In the book of John, almost all of the book of John, or majority, not almost all, majority of the book of John takes place in southern Israel down where Jerusalem is, where Judea is. There's just a little snippet of time, at least in this gospel, where Jesus is in Galilee. And that's where we are today. And uh, you can see, take note of Tiberias, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. T- take note of where they are. Now remember, that's way up north. It's about 65 miles north of Jerusalem. Okay, that's where we are. And that's where we uh, are talking about the feeding of the 5,000. Now, where the uh, 5,000 were fed, John chapter 6, is up for debate. When you travel to Israel, left of Capernaum, somewhere on that shore is where there's a church that holds that that is where uh, the feeding of the 5,000 took place. I personally don't think so, and I'll show you why. You see where Bethsaida is? I think the feeding of the 5,000 happened either there or come down where it says Gerasene territory, in between Gerasene territory and Bethsaida. And I'll point out some reasons why today. But nevertheless, what does it matter? I mean, they were on the Sea of Galilee in some boats. And I want you to know this uh, before, because we're going to talk about Jesus walking on the sea too here after he fed the 5,000. Now, I want you to know that there were two times, two stories about Jesus and a boat and disciples being a little bit unnerved. You don't get them mixed up. There's a Um, uh, an account in Matthew 8 and others where Jesus was actually asleep, do you remember this, in the boat with some disciples. We're not talking about that one. We're talking about a later one, okay? So there were two times, and uh, the reason I'm telling you that is is because the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the sea go hand in glove. I got through and talked to you last week about the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, we went, uh, did chapter 6, uh, 1 through 14, and then we skipped down and did 22 through 40. I know, very unorthodox, right? But bear with me. I think it'll uh, uh, be good. I want you to remind you that there are several levels of the book of John. It's not a, chrono- a chronological history of the life of Jesus. Remember, you can take that off. Remember, uh, Thank you so much. You re- remember that John is writing for a particular purpose, and he tells us that in chapter 20. He just point blank tells us. He, he says uh, there were so many signs, just many, many signs there in John chapter 20, but the signs doesn't use the word miracles. I think he does it on purpose. The signs are there so that you and I and all who read this, the word of God, will believe in him as the Christ and that they will believe that he's the son of God. He's the one who was predicted in the Old Testament prophecies, and he is God 
son or the God's son, the son of God. And that's what we believe as we give our entire life to him. He tells us in John chapter 20 exactly why he's writing the book. But see, this book is different than any other book or any other gospel. The others are called synoptic gospels. This one doesn't focus so much on what Jesus does and taught. That's what they do in the synoptic gospels. This gospel is more who Jesus is And thus, we were picked the sign of the eagle to mark our travel through this book because the eagle is one who can look into the sun, S-U-N. That's what we're doing. We're looking into the sun. We're getting a peek of who Jesus is, not so much what he does. And so John picks several things. He picks seven or eight or nine signs. We've gone through some. He changed water to wine. That was one sign we've already talked about. Uh, Healing of a nobleman's son. That was another sign that we've already uh, gone through. The uh, curing of the Bethesda paralytic. That was uh, Xander preaching and teaching on that. Last week, we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. And the reason we say they're signs, not miracles, is because when you see a sign you know there's a truth behind it. Like, for instance, 70 miles per hour. That means don't go over 70. You just know. I mean, it doesn't say it up there. It doesn't say revised code, blah, 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 blah. You do this, you get this penalty. You know when you see 70 MPH that that means something. And what it means is if you're cruising 80 or 90 miles down like you're on the Audubon, like some of us do, there's going to be people that sit out on the highway and they're going to, and they have hats on and they're really buff and strong and love to play golf and they uh, will pick you up and uh, take you and give you a ticket. And all that's wrapped up in just this sign. You know all of that just because you see 70 MPH in white and black. And that's what's happening in these stories. There's spiritual truths that are behind or underneath these real things that happened. And they're not there so that you and I and we will be enamored with the signs. A lot of people in Christendom are enamored with the things that God gives or does. And by the way, we love miracles so and signs. We love them. But the Lord doesn't want to base, have you base your faith on just the signs. He wants you to return to the word the bedrock, the solid rock you stand on, Jesus, the word of God, so that there's not any weird or inappropriate practices that you just base your whole Christian faith and life on his word. Now, remember, there's several different levels. There's this signs level, all the different signs, but there are also these great I am statements. See, in Exodus 3.14, God told Moses when Moses was being really squirrely about whether or not to go lead the people, Lord, I can't do that. I can't even talk. I'll give you a brother. Well, Lord, I don't even know who to tell them you are. Tell them I am. The self-existence of God, the self-sufficiency of God, the eternality of God, right there, wrapped up in a, a name. And here in the book of John, you have seven I am statements. Last week, we encountered the first one. 
I am the bread of life, Jesus said. And we'll go through the rest of them. There's so many levels. If you start to read, and especially what we're going to read today, if I ever get through this uh, uh, introduction, uh, especially what we're going to read today, there's this thing that the Lord does. It's so merciful and gracious to me. And I wonder if you think so too. And yet it's really sad. The Lord just is real about how many people surrender their life to all that he has for you and the people that come right up to the brink and don't. And it's just one right after the other, one story right after the other of somebody placing their faith in Christ and somebody mentally maybe even acknowledging who Christ is, but hey, the devils do that. And yet back away and don't follow Christ. And it's so amazing. It's for today. There's several people, I'm convinced, who are walking around thinking they're fine. They come to church. They give money. They serve in committees. They're a Sunday school teacher. They do this. They do that. And there's nothing in the heart. And it's really sad. They've come right up close to who the Lord is, but don't give their lives over to him. So we're going to see that. So here he's fed the 5,000 now, whether you think it's to the left of Capernaum over there, or you think it's in Bethsaida or a little farther down the coast on the eastern side of the Galilee. He did this. It actually says in verse 1, and we're not going to go through this again, but these, after these things of chapter 6, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is also called the Sea of Tiberias, and Luke chapter 9, verse 10, tells us he went to be alone. But he wasn't alone because they followed him. And we went through this whole thing. He made them sit down. He broke bread, gave thanks, took the little that the lad had, broke thanks, and he gave it to his disciples, and they went out and fed the people, which is amazing to me. Because when you study the life of the disciples, at least when I did, when I first encountered the claims of Christ and was reading the Bible, I'm like, man, these guys are pretty screwed up. I mean, come on. I thought everybody was supposed to be a saint and wonderful and do everything perfect and have a smile all the time and never mess up. But the Lord uses us, flawed humans, who've been saved by grace and sometimes we make mistakes. And still, look at this. He puts the bread into the hands of the people. It's even better than that. We're going to get to that in a minute. The bread, he says, is him, the bread of life. The Bible actually tells us, and this is astounding, that when we surrender our life to Jesus fully, we, the, look, watch this, we are in Christ, watch, that's not even, that is pretty great. It is great. It's equally great. But here it is. Watch this. Christ is in you. I don't know how, I don't know. But it's a mysterious thing. That's what we celebrate some with communion here when we take it. There's this thing that the Bible tells us, we are in Christ. So our position is rock solid, man, in Christ. But wow. Christ is in us. In other words, Christ places the bread 
Not just in your hands, but in your life. And he says, go out and give it to people. Me. Let me live my life in and through you. For a dark and hurting world. For people who are starving. And that's what feeding the 5,000 is all about. And it's more than that. And we talked about it. And what's beautiful is, it's blessed to give. It's even better to give than to receive. And when... They were done. They gathered, gathered up fragments that remained that, so that nothing was lost and the, filled the 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves. I'm reading down in verse 13, which were left over by those who had eaten. Just happened to be the number 12, 12 disciples. Amazing. All right, let's look at this real quick as we uh, encounter Jesus walking on the sea. Uh, here's what they say, verse 15, chapter 6, the book of John. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force. Just let that sit there for a minute. It's getting ugly. People don't mind you talking about God. But you bring Jesus into the equation and it gets rough. There's something about that name. Whoever wrote that song knew what he was talking or she was talking about. There's something about that name. It's beautiful and sweet, but it's also convicting, and it makes people feel convicted. And there can be some really uh, difficult uh, reactions to that name. And here, they're about to come and take him by force. I mean, folks, and to make him king. Now, what's that all about? Well, you, you must know, right? I mean, feeding the 5,000, come on. He took five loaves, two fishes, and somehow, somewhere along the way, as he was giving thanks, breaking bread, giving thanks to the Father, and passing it out to the people, somehow it just kept coming. I don't know exactly how. And... Well, I'm, I'm going to pause and tell you, hear this. I, I feel like that same way every week. You know, every week I have that same feeling. You know why? We just bought a building, and we just put a roof on here. And every week I look, and they, I don't know who gives or anything like that, but I see the numbers. And every week I'm going, oh, my gosh, the numbers must be down here. And every single week they're way up there. And I keep thinking to myself, Lord, how, how do you do this? It's incredible. And the Lord has given us generous people, yes, but it's his hand. And it's, it's uh, is it inexplainable or unexplainable? Anyway, either one of those, that's what it is. But only with the Lord. I feel that way every week. And I bet you the people who count the money here feel the same way. I bet it's been an amazing faith journey to see that happen, how the Lord just multiplies all of that so that, anyway, enough of that. But they want to take him by force and make him king. Why? Because there's a Roman oppressor and they don't like it. And they're thinking, wow, somebody who could do this, yes, okay, maybe he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who's the predicted one. So let's make him the king. 
And let's get rid of these hated Romans. Man, we'll finally be out from underneath their thumb. And so they want to do it. But remember, one of the themes of John is that Christ is on a divine timetable. You see it all throughout the book. It's my hour hasn't come, mom, he says. Why are you asking me? It's not my time, he says to his mother at the Cana of Galilee, turning water. And, and all throughout, you'll see it more even today. It's not his time. And what's interesting is, listen, people love the kingdom stuff, the crown, but what does Jesus know? He can't be that already, although in a sense he already is the king, because when he was born, when the wise men came, they said, we came to see the king. He already is the king. But the human popular choice, watch, is to get the crown and get the benefits of Jesus But what did Jesus know? He had to go to the cross. And it's always the way of the world. It's the way of much of Christendom. We want the cross without the crown. We want the glory without the suffering. And here, that's exactly what they wanted. They wanted to follow the, or it was a popular choice to make him king without, look, it would have, Uh, thwarted his efforts to go to the cross. It was the popular choice. And he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So guess what Jesus did about this? Man, this is a perplexing thing, I think Jesus was thinking. And I don't want that popular opinion to creep into my disciples' way of thinking. Okay, I'm going to say that again, because you ain't getting it. I don't want the popular way of thinking, the crown without the cross, to get into my people's way of thinking. See, that's really important. Because what does the Bible say for you? You're to pick up your cross daily. You're to die to self. Dying to self. I read a quote by Amy Carmichael the other day. who's was talking about uh, Christian maturity. And Amy Carmichael says, Christian maturity is only gained by small, little obediences. Dying to self in the mundane things of life. When the boss asks you to cheat and nobody will know. Just you and him. And he ain't telling. In the dirty joke that they tell at the golf course or wherever it is, the Christmas party. And you're there. Just small little obediences. Over and over. That's how she... And here, he doesn't want that to creep into their life at all. So he goes up to pray about it. He goes to the mountain to be by himself alone. And if Jesus needed to pray, folks, I got news for you. We need to pray. Are you perplexed about something? Well, here, do me a favor. Just take your phone and throw it in the ocean because it distracts you and go and be uh, alone. I'm not telling you how long and just be with the Lord, especially when it comes to the things of the cross that you and I and we need to die to. He did it. We'd need to do it. And when evening came, verse 16, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus has not come. Now, you know this same account 
is in Matthew 14, 24 through 33, and it's in Mark 6, 47 through 53. And there's tons of additional information in those gospels about this account. In fact, you know in this account, you don't know, learn that Peter walks on the water because that really wasn't what this was written for to talk to you about Peter right walking on the water, but Peter here walked on the water. You can read about it in Matthew and Mark there. And there's lots of other things that you can see, but John is writing this for a reason. And one of the, re- one of the great reasons is, is to show you why Jesus put them in this boat, which the other accounts talk about, and sends a storm. Because... Let's think about it, folks. Storms come for various reasons. If you've been following along with Jonah with us, the Lord sends a storm in Jonah. Why? To be corrective. Not really punishment, but corrective. Why? God told him, I've given you assignment to go there, and Jonah goes there. And he goes down, down, down. And as he starts to... You know, his life starts to sort of swirl out of control, although he doesn't think it's swirling out of control. He's sleeping in the bottom of the boat. The Lord knows it's headed for disaster, so what the Lord does is come and sends a storm to correct him. He goes so far as to put him into the belly of a great fish. And don't get all hung up on whether or not it was a great, you know, could could, could that actually happen? Folks, we're reading a story about him walking on the water. So there's additional information, and you can check it out there. But the one great thing that the Lord is worried about in this one, it's not so much corrective, it is that, but he sends them into the storm because think about it. They're on this spiritual high. I mean spiritual high. If you would have seen and been there when Jesus fed the 5,000, and you know, you, you had your steps here and you're trying to beat some people in steps by the end of the day, and you're, you're, and you're walking back and forth, 5,000, 10,000 people, and you saw this and you were a disciple, how high spiritually would you be the next day? You'd be like, it's like going to the East Coast Pastors Conference for us. I mean, you'd be like way up here and just, woo, it's amazing what the Lord can do. See, but here's the deal. All of us, whether we go to a women's retreat or something, we, we, or we go, here, here's the other one. We've had some people from here, including my kids, go out to California to Christian utopia, palm trees, beaches, Christians. There's like hundreds of friends. It's so fun. I can hang out in their rooms and watch movies, and it's so amazing. But here's the deal, folks. At some point, you're going to have to stop living there. And you're going to come back to Pittsburgh or Cleveland or Des Moines or Lincoln, Nebraska or, you know, Morgantown if you had to. It's a joke. But anyway, and you're going to live in the mundane. And the Lord here is doing something. He's sending a storm. He doesn't want you to get out of that mode or that thought, he doesn't want you to ever leave or be too far from the fact 
that you're a person who's called to die to self. And when you get up and you feel privileged in ministry or things are going great spiritually, there's always going to be a test afterwards. I mean, when you go to school, you don't just not take a test. You take a test. And if you don't pass the test, what happens? You take it again. And if you keep failing, you might not get to the next grade and you're going to have to take the grade, or the, the, uh, yeah, the grade over, the classes over. And here, you, you can think of this. Why does John put this little walking on the sea thing by the Holy Spirit? Why does he pick that out? Feeding the 5,000, by the way, feeding the 5,000 is in all four Gospels. But then he puts this in here because what he's trying to tell us here as we keep reading is that there's always going to be a test of faith because the Lord cares so much about you that he wants to walk you through things. You know this in Isaiah 43. He says, hey, when, the, when, when you get caught up in the waters, I'll be there. You might not think I'm there, but I'm there, and I'm walking you through. So look, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark. You know they put, the writer's putting that there in purpose. Who are these people in a boat? They're people who are used to being in the boat. <laughs> They're fishermen. But they go at night and they're scared to death. I mean, here's what they're scared about. And frustrated and angry. And the reason I know that is because the sea arose at night. Folks, if you don't have like massive electrical lights out there on the Sea of Galilee without the city lights, which there weren't then, at three or four in the morning, and you've been rowing for four miles or so, and you're rowing against the wind and you can't get anywhere. And you're an expert fisherman, rower. You're a little unnerved and a little frustrated and probably a little angry. And you might be angry because the Bible tells us that when they had rowed about, verse 19, three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. Why? Because in another gospel, it says he was up on the hills and he was watching them. So think about it. You're on a spiritual high. You're like, Lord, I must be one of your chosen favorite people. I mean, you sent me to the men's retreat. You sent me to the East Coast Path. I've been to the Bible college. There's, oh my gosh, so fun to go out to the beach and hang out with my friends. It's like, you know, what's the guy's name with the girl? Anyway, from, from uh, Disney, the Disney show when we were young. But anyway, I mean, just beach blanket bingo type stuff. And you're just, uh, I mean, oh, yeah. Well, when you were young. <laughs> but you're on this high. See, this is the point, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. And now you got to get in to the boat. By the way, it's 600 feet below sea level where they are. So coming out of the hill, you know, the, 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 the spiritual high. 
And man, I'm so good at this ministry stuff. And wow, what the Lord's doing in and through me. I've been out here to the Bible college or I've been on this mission trip. And then here's the thing. You wake up on Monday and you got to go to school or work and you live in, you know, Morgantown or somewhere. And you're just, it's just normal. And you're like, what? And things rise up. There's perplexing problems and the sea gets rough and Oftentimes, when we get in this place, you know what we say? Oh my goodness, there's such spiritual warfare. And there could be spiritual warfare, I'm not denying that. But I want you to see that Jesus sent this storm. This wasn't from the enemy. We have this thing that's, just, that's in us that only the easy stuff is from the Lord. Well, here we have the difficult stuff. Because the test is now being given. Oh, you've learned about my provision. You've learned that I'm the one who can supply. You've learned that I care for people and I have compassion on people. And I certainly love you folks who are my disciples. I actually used you to feed these people. And now... They're in a storm sent by him. He loves them enough to put them in the storm because here, folks, the currency of heaven, the stuff that's valuable in heaven, the stuff that is in heaven, it isn't gifts, good circumstances. It's faith and love and hope. It's faith. It's trust. And here he's developing their faith. And he's showing them, remember the last time there was a boat situation? Jesus was in the boat. They're progressing in their faith. They're growing in the Lord. They're doing things for the Lord. Now Jesus says, okay, we're going to try this without me in there. By the way, time out. Jesus is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. We know that. But isn't this walking on the sea sort of what it's like right now for us? He's in heaven praying. Jesus was on the mountain praying. We're in life, and bad things happen to people like us just because we live in this life. We live in a fallen world. And what do we pray? Come, Lord Jesus, come. And we're looking forward. We're even asked to look forward that day when Jesus will come and sort of propel us to safety of the shore. We'll be on the shores of heaven. We'll be with him in heaven, right? It's sort of just like that. So here they are rowing into maximum danger, three or four miles out, the Sea of Galilee's 13 miles by eight miles at the widest, sometimes six, sometimes four, up at the top, it's less. But I mean, they're out there now, and they're not getting anywhere. And they look up, and they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. <laughs> this is interesting. They were afraid. <laughs> so is that baby, it sounds like. <laughs> Folks, they're afraid. 
When Jesus is walking on the sea, they're afraid. Why is it? Maybe it's because they weren't looking for him. It's sort of like we lose everything, all our perspective, all everything. We, some of us just lose it when we get down into the mundane things of life. We love it on the spiritual highs, but when it comes, when the, the rubber meets the road, we sort of lose it. Now, the way I'm saying it's sort of like you got to be better, you got to be good. Guess what happens if you fail the test? He gives it again. He helps you. He propels you along. He says, I'm the author and finisher of your faith. I'm still writing your story with you. So here, it's not something you just like beat yourself up or I'm just so worthless. I can't do anything. Yeah, you're like, oh, shoot, I didn't pass the test. But you know what? He's so merciful and graceful. Graceful. He just puts you right back up on the horse again and says, we're going to learn again. We'll keep doing it. You didn't get mad at your kid when he couldn't ride off the training wheels, did you? You just kept putting him back up, or her. And when she got it, yes. The greatest thing ever, right? Well, that's what this is like. So they were afraid. Why? Maybe because they weren't looking for him. Keep looking for Jesus when storms come your way. See, that's the redeeming thing. Recognize that storms don't have to be from the enemy. They might be right from the Lord himself. And what he's doing is something magnificent in your life. He's learning how for you to live in just regular everyday life with the, the great irritants of life, anger and frustration and feeling hopeless like you can't steer and all those sorts of things. So look for him. That's the point of that verse, I think. Look for him. Recognize. Be able, like Jonah, afterwards, when you've repented or whatever, or maybe you don't even need to repent, but you're like, whoa, it's a storm. And you're like, oh, okay. And you get on board. Be like Jonah and be able to thank God for the whale. And be able to thank God for the storms. That's the point. Look for him in the storms. And you won't be afraid. But he said to them, it is I. Hey, don't be afraid. And then they willingly received him into the boat. And this is interesting. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. I don't know. I'll let you comment on that. But what it seems to be is, zoop. It was like the Jetsons or something. They just flew to the shore, right? Some of you folks don't even know who the Jetsons are. Oh, my I'm too young for the Mickey Mouse show, but too, you know, right on point for the Jetsons there. So, well, then on the following day, we read through this. When the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into the boat and came to Capernaum. So wherever you think this happened, however you think that happened in, in terms of the map, they're all going to end up at, at Capernaum. By the way, folks, do you know that you could look this up, Job 9.8 and uh, Psalm 74, verse 7, I believe, 
especially Job 9.8, talks about God who walks on the waves. John is telling you, Jesus was telling them, John is telling you by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just by this act, Jesus is God. You, you all in here mostly believe that, but there's a lot of people in the world that don't believe that. And they like Jesus as a moral teacher, but not as God himself. Well, so we go over to Capernaum. We've seen that. We went through this, and I'll read you a couple highlights. Jesus, verse 32, said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread into heaven. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking about to the multitudes there. Uh, then uh, he's going to be talking to the, the religious leaders of the Jews. And remember, Jewish folks thought Moses, you know, was the guy. And what was Moses doing when manna came? He was leading the people. And when he was leading them in the wilderness, God provided manna from heaven. Don't just skip over that. Every morning they would wake up. What are we going to eat today? They'd go outside. They'd pick enough for today off the dew of the grass or however you want to say that, off the ground. By the way, in order to eat the manna, what did you have to do? You had to bend over, stoop over. Jesus is the bread of life. He gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. So they scooped it up and they had enough for the day and they ate it day after day. And this was a big story in the Old Testament. And here it says in 32, most assuredly I say to you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven, the true bread. Uh, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, you know this, just think it through. Food that you eat, you're going to leave here and you're going to go to Westie Diner and get, you know, something really healthy for you. And, uh, you know, you ate oatmeal this morning or whatever you ate. All of that food is to sustain life, isn't it? I mean, if you don't eat food and water, you're, you're going to not make it too long, correct? But see, Jesus tells us here, and he's told us several times, that he gives bread that doesn't sustain life, it births eternal life. You see, he's trying to say here that I am the manna from heaven, I am the bread of life, but the quality of the bread they were eating and the quality of my life is way different. There it was used to sustain life. If you take of me, you'll have, it births or births eternal life. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. <laughs> They're still sort of focusing on the material. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. I want you to see something here. You want to know whether God saves, or does man come to God? Well, the answer is yes. 
divine sovereignty versus human responsibility, and you read this verse, and you can't be intellectually honest that they both come together, are you kidding me? Just read it. The Father gives me. Anybody the Father gives me will come to me. There you go. The Father gives all saved people to Jesus, and the one who comes to me, it's right back to back. God gives people to the Son, but the people have to come to Jesus. Am I reading it wrong? Well, anyway. Uh, I will by no means cast out, for I have come down from heaven, but not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's always Jesus' will. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. You feel lost. I can lose something in five seconds. I'll be looking at something, turn my head, think about something else, and I can't find it. So don't give me anything, by the way. (laughs) I don't want it. Don't give me a book to borrow, nothing. I'm going to lose it. I'm telling you right now. You guys, okay, well, it's true. But here's something comforting. The ones that are given to Jesus, he'll never lose. I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. He'll never lose us. You're safe. If you feel lost, just surrender. Come back to the Lord. Just repent and come back to the Lord. Just come back to him. He says, I'll never lose you. And he's the way and the truth and the life. You'll have direction and purpose. That's it. And you'll be raised up at the last day. You're going to get a glorified, resurrected body and live with Jesus forever. And this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I'll raise him up at the last day. Now put that away, man. What a blessing. The Jews (laughs) look at this. It's like, it's like, you're going to see disbelief, faith, disbelief, faith. So the Jews come to him then and complained about him. Can you imagine? I just want to give you eternal life. I've just shown you that I'm God. Job says that people who walk in waves, which is nobody, that person is God. They knew it. And the Jews are complaining. That's what religion does. Right there. That's religion. There's no inward transformation, and there's bitterness and crustiness on the outside, and they refuse to see the things of the Lord. So they complain because he said, I'm the bread of life, which, watch, this is the reason they're mad. He said, I'm the bread of life, which came from heaven. I didn't, I, I know you're thinking about the one that came out of heaven and sat on the ground, but there's something different about me in my, uh, 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 my life. I don't sustain life. I give life, and it's from the Father. That's what he's saying. And they're mad about that. And they said, is this, wait a minute, hold time out. Isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? We know these guys. How is it then that he says, I've come down from heaven? But see, he had to be a man to pay a human penalty. That's the beauty of the gospel. Don't ever lose it. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, don't murmur among yourselves. This is so funny. What did the Jews do in the wilderness when the manna, you know, like after two weeks, they're like, 
can't you get me something else? I need some barbecue sauce on this or something. How about some meat? How about something? I mean, come on, Lord. And here, Jesus, talking about himself as the bread of life, says, don't murmur among yourselves. Isn't that interesting? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. You think the glorified, resurrected body is an important issue to Jesus? I do. He keeps saying it. It's written in the prophecy, and they all, or, and they shall all be taught by God. Wow. You got to think about this now. You got some Jewish leaders and teachers. That must have went right to the heart. Because they were the ones that were charged with teaching people about God. And what Jesus is saying is, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and I'm teaching you both in word and deed who the Father is. It's a staggering thing that he says here right out of the Old Testament. It's from Isaiah 54. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Oh, my what honor it is, or Jesus uh, uh, demands or commands. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and are dead. The stuff you were relying on and all the fathers, good stuff, but they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down. Look, in verse 50 there and in uh, verse 51 when it says comes down and came down, it's in the aorist tense in the Greek. And I'm telling you that for one reason because this is a once for all action. It's a past event that enables us to have eternal life. That's going to make itself important here in a minute. I'll tell you why. I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Speaking of the penal substitution that Christ performed. But what is he talking about? My flesh. Come on, folks. Let's just read. Jesus here is talking about his life, and he's saying, if you want real life, take me in. Everything that you are is because of me, because I live in and through you. And I use, Lord doesn't say this, but I mean, he's doing this. I'm using spiritual signs to tell you spiritual truths. And these folks aren't getting it, so Jesus shocks them. And he says, I shall give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. What's he speaking of? I mean, come on, you don't have to be a genius to know this. He did give his flesh for the life of the world. He put it up on a cross. And the reason I'm making a big deal about this is some people are going to tell you that the little stuff that you take on Communion Sunday is actually his blood. Are you kidding me? The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? The point of all of this is just like several times already that's happened. Watch. 
they're getting mixed up in a spiritual explanation by Jesus and they're not understanding. So Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man, they're misunderstanding this and drink his blood. You have no life in you. You got to realize, right? You know this, right? You know this, that the old Testament law said you had to drain the blood out of an ant. You couldn't drink blood folks. What Jesus is saying here is, you must take me in completely. Just, here's, here's one quote, just as you take food and drink within your body and it becomes a part of you, so you must receive me in your innermost being so I can give you life. That's what this is about. This isn't a debate about what's in the cup. You gotta take him in. Just as you take food and drink within your body, it becomes a part of you. So you must receive me in your innermost being so I can give you life. This is a way to say how intimate it is to be a follower of Christ. And that's why, here, I'll stop here in a minute so you can get the glazed look off your face. But that's why I always say, and I got saved by the back of a magazine. But that's why I always say you can't just read them the back or you can't just read the back of a magazine and think you're saved. This is talking about something way more drastic. And by the way, I use the magazine. But it's talking about something way more drastic. You're, you're taking all that Jesus is into your life. You're counting on him for everything. And you're giving your life back to him in service. That's what this is about. It's this thing in which... You're receiving eternal life and being raised up the last day for your, my flesh is food indeed, it says in verse 55, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, watch this, abides in me. You're going to be an abider and I will be in him. I circled that in my Bible. That's so beautiful. He's in you. You know what's funny is when you're sneaking around doing some sin and you don't think the Lord sees you. <laughs> He's in you. <laughs> you think he's uh, some far off place. And maybe he's not looking in your, you know, your living room or whatever. He's in you. It's an intimate thing. These things he said. Oh, well, this is the bread, verse 58, which came down from heaven. And as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will for, live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. He was actually in a synagogue in Capernaum saying these things. Therefore, many of disciples, when they heard this said, wow, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? You understand what the Lord through the Holy Spirit is doing right here? You're seeing, watch this. You're seeing people come right up to the brink. But when Jesus says the hard things, they're like, not that man. I just want the buffet of Jesus. I want the good stuff, the prosperity and the suits and the nice cars and the watches. I want all that. I want the prosperity. You give me the prosperity, but you call me to die to myself or call myself a sinner, I'm out. That's what these people are doing. Many of his disciples, folks, these are disciples. These are followers. These are followers of his. 
Learners of his, when they heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples had complained about this, he said to this, wow, the Lord, man. So spiritually provocative, graceful and truthful. Oh, does this offend you? Tell me about it. Does this offend you? Why would this offend you? Here, tell me about it. Well, he's pretty direct. I think in a way, much more loving way than me, but just, he's direct. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Isn't that interesting? What then if you should see the Son of Man? You're balking at this? Wait till you see when I ascend to heaven. Or somebody tells you, I ascended to heaven. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe <laughs> and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. Of course, he's confident in his Father's plan. From that time, many of disciples went back and walked with him no more. Is that one of the saddest verses of the Bible you ever heard? Then Jesus said to the twelve, what about you guys? Huh. What about you guys? See, Jesus had these twelve apostles, but he had tons of disciples too who were following him. He says to the 12, what, what about you guys? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, we kick Peter around, or at least I do in my mind, because <laughs> he puts his foot in his mouth a lot. But here he gets it right. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We're at that place. I mean, Lord, we're at the end. We have no other options. You've proved over and over. And what we're basing things on, it's not going to be just the signs and the miracles. We base it on the words of eternal life. Did you catch that? Faith comes by hearing the about the miracles. Uh-uh, doesn't say that. It says faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. When the word of God's spoken, the Lord draws people to himself, and then they come to believe and know that you are the Christ the son of the living God, isn't that what John wrote in chapter 20 was the purpose of the book? So here you have, what do I do to be saved? You know, repent and be baptized. But this is a part of it is I hear the words of God. I believe the words of God. And then I know that they're true and I give my whole life for it. And Jesus answered and said, didn't I choose you the 12 and one of you is a devil? Speaking of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. It's interesting. It's just belief, unbelief, belief, unbelief, belief, unbelief. Here, the Lord sets it out right for you so you can see what it is that we're to be about. If you want to see what faith looks like, you just read in here, you see. So as 
we close and we sing these last worship songs or a song. I think we're going to do that. <laughs> I never know. I look up and get the high sign. <laughs> I just want to remind us, folks, that storms aren't necessarily from the enemy. You ever raise your hand if you've been in a storm? Oh my goodness, it's weird. Every one of us. It's life. And we recognize the storms and we know that Jesus is praying for us. He's doing things so that you'll have the uh, the currency of heaven. To trust him more. That's the privilege of life. And really, it speaks of Christian maturity as we mature. Faith is easy when it makes sense. But what about when it doesn't? Is God still good? Yes, he is. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you for this afternoon, and we thank you for your eternal word, Lord. Precious, timeless, so piercing, and yes, so gentle. Healing, convicting. Lord, if there's anyone here that wants to just get right with you, you know, just whatever it is that's going on in their life. We just pray right now, Lord, as we speak out what it is that is blocking us or hindering us. We speak in our hearts, Lord, and we come back to you. And we say, Lord, help us to recognize storms in our lives. Lord, help us to be people of faith, even when we feel faithless sometimes. thank you for these amazing tests that show us how to navigate life with you. What a privilege it is to be a son or a daughter in your family. In Jesus' name, amen.